You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. Good morning, Kensington! Happy 4th of July and happy happy birthday, America, right? Thank you for spending your 4th of July weekend here with us. Um, and if you're online, we welcome you too, and we're so glad that you're joining us. Um, first things first, let's talk about something that's happening soon. This coming Friday, we are going to be having a movie night. Um, we are going to be watching the movie Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. We are going to be welcoming you to bring some blankets, some chairs, get cozy. Um, we are going to be providing popcorn, and there's going to be a bounce house, and it's going to be super fun. We are asking if you would register for that just so we can prepare um, some goodies for you guys. Um, it's going to be super fun. And so in the spirit of doing things um, as a family, as couples, we also are doing something called date night on the 14th. It's going to be a lot of fun. We are having, um, there's going to be a food truck with really fun, like trendy food. It's going to be super fun. We're playing trivia and my two of my best friends are hosting it. And you guys, they are really super good time. They bring the laughs. They have lots of fun. And it's just a good time for you to connect with your partner. Um, they also are providing childcare, which is an, a really big bonus. You don't have to look for your babysitter. You just drop them off. You have a date night, pick up your kids. It's going to be super, super fun. And that also you can register for at kensingtonchurch.org slash ct date night, just so also we can be prepared for who is coming. Um, not only do we do church here on Sundays, we also have a midweek, and so we do midweeks once a month, and so this coming midweek is going to be on the 21st, and because we're in Michigan, we got to take advantage of the nice weather while we have it. We are going to be doing this service all completely outside, and so we want you to bring, again, pack a picnic, bring your blankets, bring your chairs, all of your friends, your family, and get ready for a great service. There's going to be worship and teaching. Also, there's going to be a bounce house for the kids in the house. Also, if you're an adult, I think you should get in the bounce house too. Um, and so in August, we typically do baptisms, and we do an all-campus baptism. So we join in with every other Kensington and we celebrate the people who have taken the next step to get baptized. And um, we go out there and we celebrate what God is doing in their spiritual journeys. And um, you can also check that out online, kensingchurch.org slash baptism. We do like when people register for those as well. We're kind of a register for things type church if you haven't caught that vibe. Um, and so we are starting a new series called Shaking the Family Tree where we are looking at the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so when you kind of think about that, you, you mostly think of most of the men. You think about um, the men being in the disciples as well. But let's be honest, these men would not be here if it were not for the women. And so take a, take, check out this song, and that's going to tell us exactly that.
Oh my goodness, I don't even know what to say. You have to appreciate great art. Now you might be asking the question though, why in church are we hearing a song like that? So I'm glad you asked that question so I can answer it for you. Um, we're going to be looking today in the next three weeks after at four women that are listed in the genealogy of Jesus, his family tree. And so we thought we'd give a nod to the reality that all of you women 
historically, going back centuries and millennia, have lived in patriarchal societies. And sometimes the women who have brought so much good into the world and so much meaning and significance and contribution are ignored or lost somehow in that. So we're going to elevate women. So we thought it'd be fun to start with that song. So family trees. You know, this is a real fascination in our world today. Um, 23andMe, Ancestors.com, people wanting to figure out where did I come from? What's in my family tree? And those of you, anybody done that at all? Okay. What you're hoping, I think, is to discover something really cool in your family tree. Like there's someone that was a great inventor or did something heroic or some famous person. That's what you're looking for. So prior to all these um, modern ways of doing this, someone in my family decided to just do it the old-fashioned way. And years and years ago, probably 20 years ago, started doing research in developing our family tree. And over time, he was actually, you know, did a tree with branches and we could see where, kind of where we came from looking for that great discovery so I could say, you're not going to believe who I'm related to. So uh, we found out that my father's um, family, going back far enough, they raised horses in Kentucky, which is kind of cool. And then one thing that we discovered was that my great-great-great-uncle, and this was actually published in a newspaper, um, fell off the horse and died while being dragged by the horse. So I got that going for me. (laughs) That's my one really unique thing. There was nothing in my family tree that stood out other than a great uncle who fell off a horse and got dragged and died. So I'm sorry I'm making fun of it, great, great, great uncle, if you're somewhere listening to this. I don't mean to make light of your misfortune, but it didn't produce anything very significant for me. Well, the Bible includes some genealogies, and it does it for very good reasons. And we're going to start there today in the first chapter of Matthew. And if you've ever read through the Bible, like in a year, and you, you have a reading program, and it usually starts with the Old Testament reading in a New Testament reading, and because the Old Testament has so many more words, they actually have to have you read more in the Old Testament and then a little bit in the New. So January 1st, if you've ever done this, this is where you start. So Happy New Year. Let's really encounter God now with this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, and you're just getting so much spiritual nourishment on January 1st from that, aren't you? Just like amazing. Now, this goes on and on and on, and I just did you a favor by stopping there, and I'm going to jump over a bunch of verses to where Matthew concludes this genealogy. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So why do we have these genealogies here? What's the the significance of that? And I think there's a couple things. First thing, and this is not just in Matthew, throughout the Bible we get all kinds of detail about stuff that you might say doesn't really matter that much, but they wrote it down because it actually is true and it happened. This is not a fairy tale. Someone's not making this stuff up. This is a very careful record taken of Jesus the Messiah, his family tree, going all the way back to the beginning to the moment when he was born of Mary and Joseph. So that's the first takeaway from that. The second, I think, is this, and I'm so glad this is true. When you look at the list of the men and women in this genealogy, and then you dig into the Old Testament and read their stories, there's no polite way to put this. These are some messed up people (laughs) that God used to bring the Messiah, Son of God, into the world. And there are, there are several things that stand out. 
in this genealogy, and this is why we're doing this series for the next four weeks, very unconventional, two things. There are women listed in the genealogy and typically in a very, very patriarchal society. They would be totally ignored. They would just look at the men. But there are a number of women, and we're going to look at four of them. So that's unconventional. The other thing that's unconventional is that the women that are listed in the genealogy are not Jewish. They're not Israelites. That's weird. And then another thing that's unconventional is that the women that are listed, other than the one we're going to look at today, when you read their stories, it's, not, it's like rated way past PG-13. Maybe, maybe it's rated R. And actually the next three weeks, we're going to look at three of the women where their lives were really pretty messed up. Um, the exception is the one today. Now, I need to say, by the way, that all the men are messed up. So we're not singling out the women. But the ones that, that were included were not like, well, they included women because they were these superstar heroes with a totally spotless, clean life. They were really troubled. I mean, there's prostitution. There's all kinds of stuff going on in this genealogy. And I just want to pause for a second. It's not the point of the message today, but just to say, what is God telling us in that? Because I'm messed up. I got problems, I got struggles, I've had sin, I have so many things in my years of life that I regret that I wish I could do over. And I read a list like this and God says, but that's the only kind of people that exist. He didn't clean up the family tree. You know, if you do uh, Ancestry.com in Jesus' life, you go, wow, there's, it's something far worse than a guy falling off a horse. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on here. And I think that should encourage us in our own journey with God that he uses imperfection, often uses it to redeem something. And so we're going to see that particularly in the next three weeks, not so much today. So we're going to be taking this journey and looking at the women that are mentioned and what we can learn from their stories. And I'm so excited about the one that we're going to look at today. But before we do that, we're going to take a moment just to receive our offering. Because once I get going, I don't want to stop. I want to keep going. So um, I just want to thank you again for giving. Um, This is such a privilege for me personally, and I think for us as a community, to come together and share our resources. We share our resources so we can advance the kingdom work of God in our community right here in Macomb County and throughout the world. And so um, you can give as you leave today. If you're here, if you've joined us online today, welcome. We think you're probably home packing your picnic basket and kind of listening in as we, um, as we meet together today. But you can give online or you can give through the app or you can text the number that you see on the screen. And once again, thank you for making this church happen. It does not happen unless we come together to support the work that God is doing here. So the first woman we're going to meet today is Ruth. And uh, Ruth uh, shows up in the genealogy in uh, chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 5. And it says, Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And we're going to look at Rahab next week, I believe. Quite a colorful uh, individual in the story of Rahab. Uh, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. So there we go. We actually have the mother mentioned in this story account this genealogy. Now you might know there's a short story in the Old Testament aptly named Ruth that tells the story of Ruth. It's just four chapters and we're going to discover two things about Ruth and I'm going to tell you what we're going to discover in advance and then we're going to go ahead and let it um, unfold as we look at the narrative here. So um, the two things that stand out for me in my mind and I think she may be the most outstanding person in the genealogy of Jesus. And we'll see why as we unpack the story. The first thing is this. She was a woman of of deep love and commitment to people and to one person in particular. You know, in a culture where um, our commitments can be fickle, 
I can be fickle. We can promise and then we can pull back. We can just live for our own self-interest. It's so easy to do that. At least in my experience it is. Here's a woman who developed such a deep love and commitment to someone. She was a person of great commitment and love. And then the second thing is she was a woman with an impeccable reputation in her community. And because of that, everything changed as we see the story unfold. So let's jump into the story of Ruth. Um, and I'm, by the way, um, I'm going to just summarize parts of the story so we can drill down and, and really camp on one thing in the story that I think God showed me for the first time. And I've been doing this a long time, but I discovered something a couple weeks ago when I began to prepare this that I so, um, feel so important that we look at today in our story. So I'm going to summarize some parts of the story for, for us today so we can get into that. So there was a man um, named Emelech, and he was married to Naomi. And Elimelech, uh, Naomi had two sons. And they're living in Bethlehem at the time, and a famine comes. And the famine is severe, and they're starving, and so they decide to go where they hear there's food. And there's food in a place called Moab, which is not that far from where they were living. It was probably 50 miles, depends on where in Moab that they went. I actually want to show you a map here so you can kind of get a little bit of a perspective on where this was. So the part that's um, in the bright color, that's Moab, and you can see um, just across um, the river there, just across the sea there is Israel, and you can see Bethlehem there. So they had to make a journey from Bethlehem to Moab, um, which, by the way, was one of their arch enemies, and it was an adversarial relationship that they had, and yet they are so desperate for food and survival that they travel into a foreign land and they put down some roots there and now they're fed now I want you to imagine there's a young woman in her teens probably named Ruth who is a Moabite and she by the way Moab people are called Moabites can anybody explain to me why Michigan people are called Michiganders Do you know how much grief I've gotten in New York from that you have no idea where are you from? Michigan. Ha, ha, ha. You guys call yourself Michiganders. Where did the D come from? Like Michiganites would be okay? New Yorkers, Michi Michiganers, Michiganders. So if any of you know the answer to that question, and by the way, this last year with the pandemic and politics, Governor Whitmer was in national news all the time, once thought maybe to, to be the vice president, and so they would have clips from her, and she would always talk about Michiganders. So after the service, if you know why there's a D in there, Come up so I can go back to New York and explain to people why we call ourselves. And I, I lived 51 years in, in Michigan before I went to New York, so I'm a proud Michigander, but I never thought about why there's a D there until I got challenged on it. By the way, this has nothing to do with the message, and maybe you caught that right now. But I had, to, I had to get it off my chest. I had to vent it out there. So they were not called Moabiters. They were called Moabites. So anyhow, here's Ruth. Back to Ruth. Oh, my gosh. I don't know where that came from. Came from New York, yes, you're right. <laughs> so try to picture if you can, use your imagination. Here's a young girl in her teens named Ruth who's living in Moab. And probably like most teenagers, all of us when we were that age, she's looking to the future with all kinds of hope and positive expectation and desire for love and for family and for marriage. And she has no idea that this family has just left Israel and is on their way. And they're going to come into her country, and it's going to change her life dramatically. I always wonder about what's next. And I've seen over and over again 
the impossible happened, the strange, the unexpected, the unusual happened, and this is what's going to happen to Ruth. Her future is wide open, but it's going to change dramatically. And so they arrive in Moab, and, and unfortunately, Elimelech dies. Naomi's husband dies. We're not told how. It's very, just said very clearly, he died. And then we're told that her sons married Moabite women, one of whom was named Ruth. That's a no-no. That's against the law in Israel. Their, their Jewish law, you don't marry a foreigner. You only marry within your own country, your own religion. And I'm kind of wondering and speculating here, but I think maybe with dad gone, and they're in a foreign land, and you know, just try to imagine this. She's got these two sons now, and um, they're going to go find wives, and they're not in Israel, so they're at marriage, marrying age, and so they pick on Moabite wives. And then... Both sons die. So now I want you to think about Naomi. Left her land, her language, her culture, her food, everything familiar to her so they could get food in a famine and now she loses her husband and her two sons. And it's only one simple sentence but there's so much weight in the sentence. Ruth chapter 1 verse 5. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. I want to just, I just want to pause in that moment so we can get some empathy going here for Naomi. 50 miles away from home, all of her family, all of her roots, living in a foreign land with all the weight of the grief and loss. I mean, can you imagine that? Her husband and her sons, and now she's alone and she has two Daughters-in-law now, and they're Moabites. She's alone. It's not the beginning of, it sounds like the beginning to a good story. It's a pretty tragic story for Naomi. What's she going to do? Well, about 10 years into this whole experience now, the famine is over, and she hears that there's food back in Bethlehem in Israel. And so she decides to go back to her home, which makes sense. And her daughters-in-law say, we're going to come with you. And she does everything she can. You need to read the story when you have some time today. It'll only take you about 20 minutes to read the whole thing. Um, she does everything she can to talk her daughters-in-law uh, out of it. Don't come with me. Uh, it was for their own good. They need to find husbands themselves because they're young widows. and They need to find husbands. They, you're going to find it in their own homeland. So don't go with me, she basically says. And then in, in the first chapter still, um, when they're having this conversation, it says they wept aloud again. Then Orpah, who was the other uh, daughter-in-law, kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. She's not having none of this. No, I'm going to go with you. So she tries again to talk Ruth out of it. You need to stay here. These are your people. This is your language. This is your hometown. You're going to find a husband here. You need to, you need to not do this stupid thing. You need to stay here. And Naomi says, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go, go back with her. And here's how Nuth replies, and this is a very well-known, often-quoted passage of Scripture. She says, and this is where we see the love and commitment, that I don't even understand why it's there. She says, don't urge me to leave with you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, 
and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. What a commitment. What a sacrifice that Ruth was willing to make for her. I don't even understand. As I said, there's not any details about why she would do this. It made more sense, really, on every level for her to just stay, but she goes with her. I find this absolutely extraordinary. Her love and devotion to Naomi, and I don't know about you, but when I hear those words, and I have had the experience, I, uh, next, next week I celebrate, Chris and I celebrate our 36th uh, wedding anniversary, and this is the kind of relationship that we've had for both, for each other. Where you go, I'll go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. We're actually kind of New Yorkers right now. I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit it. But, you know, we, this is the journey God has led us on. Those words didn't, when you heard me read them, when you saw them up on the screen, didn't something in you resonate? Like that kind of commitment and relationship that someone says, I'm all in with you. Your people are my people. Your God is my people. Your place is my place. Your home is my home. Only death is going to separate us. That level of commitment, that's extraordinary characteristic about Ruth. But there's something that I noticed this time when I, when I studied Ruth for this message that I hadn't really paid attention to before. And that's where we're going to go in the time that we have left today. Buried in this narrative in the first chapter, maybe it's not buried, it's actually pretty evident, is a description of Naomi's state of heart. I ask you to think for a moment when she lost her husband and her two sons, what, would you, what do you think that felt like for her? Like, what was that experience like? In the first chapter, through five statements that Naomi makes, we know exactly how she's doing. And she's not doing very well. She's barely hanging in there. In fact, I want us to take a look at them. This is what she says, all in the first chapter of Ruth. She says, it is more Bitter for me than for you, because the Lord, the Lord's hand has turned against me. How did she think about her loss? God has turned against me. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. And I'll talk a minute about what that name means. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. God has made my life bitter. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. So why call me Naomi? The Lord has made my life empty. And then she says, the Lord has afflicted me. And then finally, the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. What was, what was her state of affairs as she, as she surveyed her life and said, I, I came to Moab from Israel with a husband and two sons, and I'm going back with nothing. And God has done this to me. He's turned against me. He's not for me. He's against me. He's brought bitterness, emptiness, loss into my life. It's right there in the first chapter. That's what this, in my mind, that's a significant part of what this story is actually about. If you've studied Ruth and heard messages, usually the emphasis is on the, the kinsman redeemer, and we're going to mention that in just a minute. But here's this sad, broken, disillusioned, cynical, bitter woman, and for good reason. And how is she navigating all of her loss? by pointing to God saying, he did this to me. In fact, she changed her name to Mara. The word Naomi 
actually is a wonderful name. It's not a name that we hear much anymore. Naomi means good or pleasant. Mara in the Hebrew means bitter. So when she goes home to Bethlehem and everybody says, Naomi, you're back, you're back. And, oh, where are your sons and where's your husband? And she's got these two Moabite daughters-in-law or one that's with her. And they're saying, Naomi, she says, stop calling me Naomi. Good or pleasant, that's not me anymore. Call me Mara, that means bitter. Call me bitter. So do you get the sense of the depth of the pain and disillusionment that she's in? Call me bitter. By the way, if there's anyone listening here online that your name is, is Mara or Mara, or you've named your daughters that, the good news is that in the Greek, it has a very different meaning. Um, this is in the Old Testament, so it's in Hebrew, but the, it, Mara in the Greek actually comes from a word that means eternally beautiful. So if I'm talking to any Maras right now, you are eternally beautiful. You're not, you're not bitter. Now, I, this, is, this is where I want to go, and this is going to get a little heavy and deep. I'm just going to warn you, and it's, and it's going to get a little theological, and everybody may not agree with me on this. I'm sharing my perspective after 65 years of life and 40-some years of ministry, being, being in people's lives and their business in the, in the Naomi's which I've had hundreds of Naomi's in my life as a pastor. Some of you right now are Naomi. And the five statements she makes, even if you don't say them out loud or nobody knows it, is how you're thinking. We sang a song a couple weeks ago. We've sung it several times that I love where the refrain is, he is for you, he is for you, he is for you, he is for you. And I believe that with all my heart, but Naomi didn't believe that. And some of you right now are struggling. And you've been encouraged to believe that if you have cancer, God gave you cancer. If you lost a child, God took your child from you. If you lost your job, God wanted that to happen. He wanted you to lose your job. Whatever the misfortune is, as you think about and reflect on your own life, either today, right now in this moment, or you can look in the past, or if somehow you've avoided all of that, it's coming for you. I'm telling you, it's coming. Because we live in a broken world that God will one day redeem completely, 100%. But right now, we're in it. We're in the battle. And one of the most important things that we have to do is sort out, where is God in this? Is God causing this? We know what happened, so it, it might, he's allowing it, but is he behind it? Did God want Naomi's husband to die? Maybe he got run over by a cart, an oxen cart. Maybe her son fell off the roof. Maybe her son got a disease. These things happen in life. Was this God's perfect plan for her? Was this God punishing her? And by the way, it, the theology of the day in Israel would be, if this happens to you, God is punishing you. Something's there. Think about the story of Job. If you know the story of Job, when his three friends came, and, and we're told Job was an upright man. They're saying, you, you think you're upright, but you're not because God has brought this calamity into your life. That theology existed thousands of years ago. It exists today. It's alive and well right now. Where we're, because we believe God is sovereign and providential, we're, we're encouraged to believe that if it happens, it's God's will. And that's what Naomi believed. Therefore, God has turned against me. He's emptied my life. He's brought bitterness into my life. It is so critical that we understand this, in my opinion, my humble opinion, that we get this right. Because things happen all the time that are not God's will. Now, if that sounds like heresy, I'm going to give you one little test. Is anybody sinned ever in your life? Have you guys sinned ever in your life? 
Of course. Probably some of you 30 times today already. You're off to a good start, right? Does God, is, it, is it God's will that you sin? No. Oh, so something can happen that's not God's will. Stuff happens. We make choices, free will. God is not handpicking who gets cancer, who loses a child to leukemia, who has a spouse who's unfaithful. He's not bringing this calamity into our lives. But if you believe he is, how can you be close to God? How can you trust him? And this is where we find Naomi. She's in her brokenness of loss, which is a very human thing, but she's also, as she's trying to sort it out and think about it and put it together, she's, she believes that this is what God wanted and he brought this into her life. And so she changes her name to Bitter. What's going to rescue Naomi? Someone said it right here. Ruth. Which is why, to me, she's such an extraordinary person. She must have obviously seen, when she said, your God will be my God, she's saying, the God that you think has turned against you, I don't believe that. Because who would want that kind of a God who's just bringing misery and punishment into your life? So Naomi didn't believe, but the Moabite woman believed and still trusted that God was good. And this is how the story unfolds now, how she brings, Ruth is able to bring this healing. The first thing is imagine standing on the road on, their, on her way back to Bethlehem and Ruth will not take no for an answer. I'm not going to let you be alone. Maybe it was the very evidence and experience that Ruth had of her bitterness and her anger and her, and her, her pain and her brokenness that said, I can't let you go by yourself. I got to go with you. You're my mother-in-law. I'm not going to abandon you. I don't care what you say. I'm going with you. For the rest of my life, I'm going to die with you. Because that's what Naomi needed. She needed to not be alone in the struggle that she was in. Your God will be my God. And so I believe Ruth brought hope and love and a possible future into Naomi's life. And this is how it actually unfolds. And this is what Ruth teaches me. Her life inspires me to live with deep love and devotion to others, even when they're broken and they're angry and they're bitter and they've turned their back on God. Her extraordinary love and commitment has, just in the last two weeks, challenged me to reevaluate my relationships and my commitment to people and what God might want to do through this relationship. And so let's finish the story and see how this unfolds and how Naomi's life is redeemed because of Ruth's commitment to her. So, in the story, um, and it would take um, too much time to go into the depth of it, but in their culture, in Israel, if a woman died and she did not have an heir, a son, the next uh, closest living relative would take man, would take her as his wife so that she could continue the family name. That was in the law. And so um, Naomi now has no sons, no heirs, end of the family tree for her. And so now, back in Israel, back in Bethlehem, um, there's an opportunity for that to be redeemed. And it's redeemed through a man named Boaz. And Boaz is a wealthy man who has fields and workers that work in the field. And Ruth goes out and begins to pick up the grain that is left because they're very poor. Naomi and Ruth are very poor. So she's picking up the leftovers and bringing it back. And Boaz notices her 
and inquires, who is this woman? And learns that it's Ruth, and she's a Moabite woman, and she's the daughter-in-law of Naomi. And so she's noticed. And then when they finally have a conversation, this is what Boaz says about Ruth. He says, all the people of my town know that you're a woman of noble character. She stood out of a woman of noble character, and that created the opportunity for Boaz to be the man that would come along and would redeem her, marry her, and bring a future back into Naomi's life. And so that's exactly what happens. It says, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and we had made love to her. The Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And so now we have a very different thing beginning to unfold in Naomi's life. Because she was a woman of impeccable reputation and Boaz recognized that, it, it was not a hard ask for him to marry her and to, to, uh, to bring offspring into Naomi's life. And now here's the impact on Naomi. So remember where we started with her. Lost everything. God's against me. Empty. Futile. Bitter. Hopeless. And now she... She holds her grandson. And the women around, this is in chapter 4 of Ruth, the women around Naomi say this to her, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. So as Naomi now is a grandma, you got any grandmas here? Love your grandkids, right? I just, when I picture that moment where she's holding this little boy, and I've been there three times, two boys and a girl, this newborn, and this, this is now, her life has totally turned around. And because she's brought into this family, this wealthy family of Boaz, now no longer begging for food, no longer worried about it, she's going to be, as, as it says in the scripture there, she's sustained until her old age. So it's a beautiful redemptive story from chapter 1 to chapter 4. Now here's the challenge I want to leave with us today from this story. If you're a Naomi right now, either here in the room with us or if you're listening online or maybe you're listening to this a month or a year from now. The first thing I want to say is I'm really sorry for you, for your loss, whatever it is you're facing. Life is hard and there's pain. I don't think I have to convince you of this. I hope many of you are not in it right now, but some of you are. Right now, you're Naomi. And if you're Naomi, I want you to believe that there's a Ruth out there that God can bring into your life. I'm praying that he will bring it into your life. When I look at my life, when I, you know, as you get older, you have more history to review. I can see now times in my life where my faith was weak. And when you're a pastor and you're up teaching and your faith is weak, that's a hard thing to do. You're not willing to give it all up yet, but you're struggled and you're confused. And I can look back and see that God brought people into my life where I, I could live off their faith for a while. 
Even if I didn't believe it, someone sitting with me, hearing my objections, hearing my concerns, hearing my, my woes and all of that, and to stay with me. Not preach at me, not quote verses to me, just be with me. And their faith and their commitment to me and their walking alongside of me kept me going one step at a time. And so if you're Naomi today, I'm praying for a Ruth for you. God, please bring Ruths into our lives when we need them. A man or a woman who will come in and stay with us and say, I will go where you will go. I will be with you. I'm all in. Your God, my God will be your God. Your God will be my God. I'm here. I'm in, I'm in for the long haul. So that's the first word I want to just share for the Naomi's listening to me right now. I'm sorry. I believe God is for you. I believe he didn't bring the calamity into your life. And I'm praying for a Ruth for you to walk with you in this. This is what we're called to do. And then the second challenge is to be a Ruth. Is there someone in your circle of friends or community that you know is struggling? Or maybe you don't know it because you haven't talked to them, but you, you've heard what's happened or what's going on. Could God be calling you to be the Ruth that steps in with love and commitment that says, I don't care how ornery you get. I don't care how angry you are. I don't care how much you don't believe in God right now. I'm not going to let you go. You're not walking away from me. And I'm not walking away from you. We need each other for this to work. And if you're feeling bad, by the way, if you're a Naomi or uh, situation right now in your life and you're not sure about God, God's okay with that. He sees how much pain you're in. He sees how difficult this is. And if you're, you know, you're here today maybe and it's the only thing you could do is come, but you're not sure about any of this. God's okay with that. But we need to be Ruth for a person like that. That their pain and, and loss and suffering doesn't scare us away. Because sometimes we don't want to be around it because it's too hard. And we don't know what to say or what to do. Forget all that. You just need to be there. Just listen. Job's friends did great until they talked. He had company, he had support, he had friendship. And then when they started talking, they messed it all up because they gave that same theology. God's brought this into your life. At the end of Job, God says, no, I didn't bring this into your life. You've got to read the first chapter of Job. It tells us why it happened. There was an enemy who was out to get Job. So I'm praying, just to be clear, I'm praying. If you're Naomi, hang in there. Look for a Ruth, pray for a Ruth. And then let's be ruse for others. Let's walk with them in the valley of the shadow of death and bring hope and life and to see that there's, a po there's always hope and possibility that there will be something redemptive down the road. It doesn't make it everything that happened part of, part of God's master plan, but God can show up in all of our brokenness and meet us and bring hope back into our lives. And so I just want to pray. I want to pray especially right now and the worship band is going to come out. And, and, the, and the two songs that we're going to do are going to direct our hearts to the God of love who is for us. He's, he's on our team. He loves us. He's not out to get us or hurt us. But I want to pray right now for anyone listening to this message today who's in a Naomi situation. So God, you know what I don't know. That in this room right now, in this auditorium, there are men and women that are just hanging on barely. 
Could you, even in these moments of worship, bring a deep experience of your love for them? That you feel their pain, you bear their pain. On the cross, you bore all of our pain in the hope that one day it will all be made right. God, would you help Naomi's men and women today to give a light, little bit of light, a little bit of hope. And then, God, I would, I would pray for those around in Naomi right now that they would step up to be a Ruth, to walk with them through this difficult time, to give them hope when they have none of their own. Pray this in your name. Amen.
faithful through the ages. Yeah. God of Abraham, you're the God of covenant and faithful promises. Time and time again, you have proven you do just what you say. Though the storms may come and the winds may blow, I'll remain steadfast. And let my heart learn when you speak a word, it will come to pass. Great is, Great is your faithfulness to me. Great is your faithfulness.
to the ground. My hope and firm foundation, you'll never let me down. I'll put my faith in Jesus, my anchor to the ground. My hope and firm foundation, you'll never let me down. Sing it, I'll put, I'll put my faith in Jesus. My anchor to the ground. So Ruth had a son, and she named him Obed. And Obed grew up and got married. And he had a son who she named, he named Jesse. And Jesse grew up and got married and had a son named David, the king, and so on. And we find Joseph who married Mary, and they had a son named Jesus, the one we've been singing about. 
And how does Jesus feel about Naomi's suffering and our suffering today? He took it all on the cross. All the brokenness, all the pain, all the suffering, all the sin of the world, God took it on himself in the person of Jesus. That's the story of Ruth, of God's faithfulness that took Naomi's life, redeemed it through Ruth's love and commitment to her, and the lineage continued all the way up to Jesus. And so I hope today you find hope. If you needed hope today, I hope you can give hope to someone who needs it today as you move into your week. And one of the things I'm excited to be able to announce this morning is as, as the pandemic has lifted um, and there's more freedom, uh, we're able to now offer prayer down front. Uh, Tracy is down here and others. If you just want someone to pray with you today or you want someone just to share a little bit of your burden you're carrying, we have people down front that would love to just spend a moment with you. So God bless. Enjoy the rest of the 4th of July. We'll see you back here next Sunday. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.